Where does your mind go when you allow it to wander? Do you find yourself thinking of the unknown, trying to separate fact from fiction? Welcome to my mini-series, where we discuss possible explanations for the unexplainable. My name is Ray, and these are things that keep me up at night. guys hello hello my name is gage and my name is ray and yes you are still listening to gold report a true crime podcast (laughs) yes 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 it is so refreshing to be here and not talking about dennis raider that part I was getting so tired of that man occupying space in my brain. I'm pretty sure all of you can agree with me. Oh, yes. Good Lord. <laughs> I think after Columbine and then Dennis the Menace Raider, we yeah. all needed like a big mental scrubbing. Yes, absolutely. So we also hope that you guys are enjoying the spooky season. October is upon us. Yes, Finally. I am at my peak in October. It's my favorite time of the <laughs> year. It's when my birthday is. It's it's all of the spook, all of my favorite things. It is wonderful. Yes. I actually wanted to say, too, I don't know how it is in other places, but me and Ray are in Georgia. And in Georgia, the weather is ridiculous. One day you can be suffocating under Satan's scrotum. And then the next day, it's like you took a bath in, like, antifreeze or something. There's no in-between. And it was just two days ago that it actually started to feel like fall here. And that's finally Finally. And that's been wonderful because Georgia, like, when it's hot, it's very, very hot and very uncomfortable. But in autumn, when it actually cools down, it's actually really beautiful. I love autumn in Georgia. It's, It's quite the thing. What I'm most impressed with is how it went from sweltering summer to freezing fucking evenings with the flick of a light switch. It it always happens like that, I'm telling you. So that's been really, really nice. I love fall weather. It just brings me so much serotonin. It really puts me in the swing of things. Like I said, this is just peak time of the year for me. You know what else is really just peak for us? Us going to go get tattoos today? Yes, that okay. So small little rant because we hardly ever talk about things that we do like outside of the podcast. But today was a really fun day. Like it was super, super, super fun. Ray and I decided to have a best friend date slash early birthday celebration for me. Yay! Yes. Um, you guys are going to be hearing this Thursday. But we are recording this on Monday, so my birthday is Wednesday. So by the time you guys hear this, my birthday will have been yesterday. Yes. So belated, but future happy birthday? How does that work? I honestly don't know, but thank you for the birthday wishes anyways. I I, I feel like we just just broke a law of physics or something. Yeah. (laughs) I honestly don't know how that would work. Quick, someone find the flux capacitor. That's just kind of what I wanted to do. 
I don't really do much for my birthday because I'm an old man trapped inside of a 28-year-old body, and I'm a hermit, <laughs> and I despise going outside. <laughs> but I kind of wanted to just hang out with you. We went and did our favorite thing today, which is getting tattooed, and it's been, I think, like almost two years since my last tattoo. So it's been quite a while for me, too. I was way overdue for some ink. It was It's like a, a wonderful release for me. I absolutely love it. So I'm still very much riding the serotonin high from it. It's absolutely <laughs> nice. Um, and even though you guys can't see it, obviously, I got this really cool spider on the underneath part of my arm, kind of like near my armpit. The sweet mate. The sweet mate. Um, it hurted, but it's beautiful, and honestly, it's one of my favorite tattoos that I have, point blank, period. And then you, my friend, decided to go all in. It was so funny, too, because the way that I had to lay... Okay, so I got a face tattoo today. Hell, yeah, you did, and, and it's And the way beautiful. that I had to lay, I couldn't even look over at you or even say anything. I couldn't move my face. I had to stay perfectly still because it's quite big. It's like on the side of my face. But you got a chance to look over at me, and I couldn't look at you at all. <laughs> I had to lay there in the fetal position trying to keep my head still and my face emotionless. It was just a really, really fun experience. The tattoos are beautiful. <laughs> like, we woke up early this morning. We had coffee. We spent some time together, got dressed, went and got tattooed. It was beautiful outside today. Yes, it was. And then after that, we got some Chinese food, and we came back to my place, and we've just kind of been hanging out. And, and now here we're, we are. Yeah, and here we are recording. So it's been just super, super nice. I hope you guys are enjoying your fall season just as much as we are. I keep laughing because of the story you told me with the sound that I made when I was getting tattooed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you could definitely tell you was in pain. All you hear is blaring rock music, the zzz of the tattoo machines, and then Ray just goes, <laughs> I lost my shit. I lost my, like, I was giggling so hard. I was telling my tattoo artist, I was like, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry that I'm cracking up so bad. I'm trying not to move, but I just, this is our relationship. If we hear the other one getting <laughs> fucked up in some way, we just can't help but laugh about it. Like, it's just, that's just how we are. But oh, it was great. It was man. honestly great. It's been just a fantastic day. And speaking of things that make you go, <laughs> I actually have a couple of things to add to that. First thing being, since it is October and it is spooky month, Ray and I are going to take a break from true crime content and we're just going to do some spooky stuff. Yeah. You know, maybe some spooky history, some, you know, whatever it may be, things outside of true crime. I think that would be a very good mental health reset, not only for me and you, but also for all of you listening. So we're just going to celebrate October covering some some very, very creepy things and some spooky stuff, some scary stuff. Yeah. It's going to be super fun. Also, I'm not going to give too many details about it on air on this episode. I'll talk a little more about it next week for my next episode. But we may or may not have a really awesome Halloween episode planned for you guys. 
We've been working very hard on it. Yeah, it's going to be super, super cool. Again, you will be hearing this Thursday, and we're recording this on Monday, so maybe by the time this goes up, you will have already seen a Instagram and a Facebook post from us revealing what said Halloween episode is. So if that's not up by the time this episode goes up, then definitely keep a lookout on our Instagram and all of our pages. It's going to be super, super, super fun. Definitely. So, here we go. The major thing that will make you go, (laughs) I'm ready. Let's hear it. So most of us all know this little game that we dared to play at parties. You walk into a dark bathroom with a lit candle. You stare at yourself in the mirror and chant her name. Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary. Oh, shit. I was about to say, no, please don't say it three times. Please, please, please. (laughs) (laughs) Now, a lot of us remember only having to say her name three times, but through my research, I found out that you have to chant her name 13 times. So maybe that's why it never worked. Oh, I see. No. But Bloody Mary would show up as a ghostly apparition in the mirror. Sometimes she'd appear alone, covered in blood in a white gown. Another time she'd either look for her missing baby or she'd be holding a dead baby. Oh, fuck. There's even other variations of this game that say that Bloody Mary would appear in the form of your own reflection, but covered in blood. Oh. The legend says that if she did show up, she'd stare at you, curse at you, scream, and loudly weep. But occasionally, she would leap from the mirror to either strangle, scratch, and claw at the eyes of, or even kill her summoner. But is the legend of Bloody Mary based in reality? And if so, who was the real Bloody Mary? the vibes are scary (laughs) the whole bloody mary story could feasibly just be a scary story but there are possible figures from history who might be the real bloody mary queen mary first of england who was called bloody mary for centuries for the things that she did or a supposed evil witch named mary worth who may have inspired the murderous intent of the ghostly apparition with stunning and haunting similarities to the folklore. I've always said that life is stranger than fiction, and the unknown is shrouded in mystery and fear. Even if we are told the absolute truth, would you be open-minded enough to believe it? So let's talk about Queen Mary I of England. So she was the daughter of King Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon, who was the king's first wife. And if you've ever watched the show Tudors, you get a glimpse into some of the struggles that Queen Mary had to face when she was younger. But the series only gives you certain milestones or instances, whereas today we will be discussing how she came to be known as Bloody Mary. Now Mary was born on February 18th, 1516 at the Palace of Palencia, which was an English royal residence which was designed for pleasure, entertainment, and escaping the city life. This palace is where previous queens would spend their time away from court to give birth as well. King Henry VIII was born there, 
Then later on, Mary was born there. It was a private place for any member of the royal family to convene and be away from the public eye. Because if you were, quote unquote, at court, as they would call it, everybody was in everybody else's business. Like no one stayed in their lane at all. Right, right. So Mary was the only living child between King Henry and Catherine that survived infancy. Catherine suffered many miscarriages, stillbirths, and infant deaths. And in fact, before Mary's birth, Henry and Catherine lost three sons that were either stillborn or short-lived, including their son Henry, who was celebrated and named the Duke of Cornwall before he suddenly died weeks later at just 52 days of life. Oh my goodness. So being a member of the royal family and giving birth to a boy was such a big deal. Because this was during a time where having a boy meant you had an heir to further your great bloodline and legacy. Right. The familial line is carried on and the succession of the throne was very important. Women were raised to be married off, have children, support their husband, be obedient to their husbands, and handle things at home. And men were taught business, politics, war tactics, and where to stick their dick. Uh, so, righty. if you're ever curious what this period of time was like, and you've never seen Tudors, I, again, highly recommend watching it. Three days after Mary's birth, she was baptized into the Catholic faith at the Church of the Observant Friars in Greenwich. Immediately after her baptism, she was also confirmed into the Catholic faith. Gotcha. Mary was a very precocious child, possessing certain abilities that quickly developed at a very young age. At just four and a half years old, she entertained a visiting French delegation with a performance on the virginals, which is a type of harpsichord. And she also entertained a Spanish delegation with her dancing. And at one point, a French delegation visited her a second time, and she was able to easily and fluently converse with them in French and Italian. And how old was she? Four and a half. Whoa. Right. Holy shit, I do good to speak English on a good day. Like, <laughs> And half the time, it ain't even good English. <laughs> right, it's totally not. My goodness. So, wow. I'm going to pause here for a moment. I do also want to mention that throughout Mary's childhood, Henry negotiated potential future marriages for her. Arranged marriages were definitely a thing if you were a royal, so that's no surprise there. But the surprise comes in when we discuss how old she was for these betrothals. When she was only two years old, Mary was promised to Francis Dauphin of France who was the infant son of King Francis I. But after three years, the contract was renounced. My goodness, they're babies. Literal babies, infants. Goodness. In 1522, at the age of six, she was then arranged to marry her 22-year-old cousin, Charles V, who was the Holy Roman Emperor and King of Spain. However... Charles broke off the engagement within a few years, with Henry being in agreement, because Mary was still very young, and Charles needed a wife right now. 
normally during those times, if you were betrothed to someone, like with her being age two and him being age 22, if you were betrothed to someone, they would wait until you were of a certain age before they would actually consummate the marriage, which is gross. Still wild as hell. <laughs> right. <laughs> Super fucking wild. So Cardinal Wolsey was Henry's chief advisor, and he resumed marriage negotiations with the French. And Henry suggested that Mary should be arranged to the French king, Francis I, who was eager to snatch up that alliance with England. A marriage treaty was signed, which stated that Mary either marry Francis I or his second son, Henry, who was the Duke of Orleans. Now, neither of these marriages panned out for Mary, as Cardinal Wolsey managed to secure an alliance with France without the marriage entirely. So she was just really thrown to the wayside. So back where we were, by the age of nine, Mary could read and write in Latin. She studied French, Spanish, music, dance, and it's speculated that she also studied Greek as well. Now, a huge part of her early education came from her mother, Catherine. And Catherine regularly consulted her friend and Spanish humanist, Juan Luis Vives. Now, she would ask him for advice and even commission him to write De Institutione Femine Christiane, which was a treatise or dissertation on the education of girls, which was a big deal like girls weren't regarded to be smart or as capable as boys Ugh, like, how gross like education for girls bah, nonsense that's, that's unheard of that's unheard of it's unprecedented going back into certain eras of history is just so shocking like it is so shocking it really is and a lot of the stuff that i kept in that i wanted you guys to know as part of her childhood it just it will it will all start making sense. I just wanted you guys to see how she was treated. King Henry doted on his daughter, but despite the love he had for Mary, Henry was disappointed that his marriage to Catherine produced no heirs to his throne. He began to heavily believe that his marital union to Catherine was literally blighted by God. All righty. In the Bible, Leviticus 20, 21 says, quote, And if a man shall take his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing. He hath uncovered his brother's nakedness, and they shall be childless, end quote. So to explain why this was so prevalent to him, Catherine was initially married to Henry's older brother, Arthur. But, oh. Yeah, but their marriage was only five months long before Arthur died. And the marriage was never consummated, according to Catherine. According to her, she was a virgin when she came to Henry. Gotcha, gotcha. But Henry took all that pain and trauma from losing his children at such young ages and took it as a sign from God that his marriage to Catherine was unholy. You know, never mind the fact that he had a mistress for some time during his marriage to Catherine and ended up falling head over heels for his mistress's sister, Anne Boleyn, which was another motivating factor in seeking an annulment from the church. 
And this was so nasty of a divorce, too. Like, it was a public affair. So Pope Clement VII refused King Henry's request for an annulment, and this may have caused some reluctance to act on the Pope's part because he was influenced by Charles V. Remember him? Mm-hmm. So he was Catherine's nephew and Mary's former fiancé. So King Charles' troops had Rome surrounded and occupied during the War of the League of Cognac. So with King Charles's relationship with his Aunt Catherine and Cousin Mary being what they were, if the Pope had agreed, there would have been a price to pay, I'm sure. Goodness. The year 1531 was the beginning of Mary's problems. She was often sick with irregular menstruation and depression. There was never a deep-seated answer for what ailed Mary, but it is speculated that she had endometriosis, which is uterine-like tissue growth on the outside of the uterus, which causes extreme amounts of pain, especially during menstruation. It was unclear whether this had been brought on by stress, puberty, or some unknown disease. And who's the one person you want when you're feeling ill? Your mom. Your mama. Right. Well, she wasn't permitted to see her mother anymore. What? Henry sent Catherine away from court, and Mary was not able to see her, to write to her, nothing. She was ordered to stay away. That is so cruel. Yeah. Like, my God. So, under strain, her movements restricted, and being frequently ill, the royal physician attributed her pains to her ill treatment, which I will explain. So, earlier in the year of 1533, Henry married Anne Boleyn, and by May, Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, formally declared the marriage between Catherine and King Henry void and null, and the marriage to Anne was now considered valid. Henry renounced Pope Clement's authority, declaring himself supreme head of the Church of England, so Rome would have no more say over England at all. Due to this change, King Henry's say-so was now law. Catherine was demoted to Dowager Princess of Wales, which is a title she would have had anyway as Arthur's widow. Mm -hmm. But poor Mary, she was deemed to be an illegitimate child. She was named the Lady Mary rather than Princess, and her place in the line of succession was transferred to Henry and Anne's newborn daughter, Elizabeth. Mary's household of 300 servants was disbanded. Her servants were dismissed. And in December of 1533, to add insult to injury, she was sent to join her infant half-sister's household at Hatfield Palace. So she was made to be a lady-in-waiting for Anne and Henry's daughter, Elizabeth. And that is so fucked up. Like, one minute you're a royal family member, and the next minute you're damn near an outcast. She wasn't even allowed to go walking in the gardens. She was basically a prisoner, treated as a servant, and told she's no longer princess, and she was to address the infant Elizabeth as princess. This is literally, like, next-level cruel. Like, it always blows my mind going back and exploring these different eras of history and just seeing how fucking barbaric people were. 
Whereas like, for some of them, they're like, oh, it's a Tuesday. It just, it's wild. Like, truly, it is wild. I still stand by what I say when I say that humans are the scariest fucking things on this planet. Truly. So, you're going to like this. Mary gives a big ye old fuck you guy as she <clears throat> refused to acknowledge Anne as her queen and Elizabeth as a princess. You go, Mary. Hell yeah. But this only fueled Henry's anger into rage. Oh, no. Right. She said the only person she knew by that title was herself, as it was given to her by God, nature, and her parents. Wow. Holy shit. That kind of slit gave me chills just a little bit, honestly. Like, you go, girl. You are your own queen. You are your own queen, girl. Yes. And to all of you listening, you're your own queen. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Imperial Ambassador Eustace Shopwee became Mary's close friend and advisor, and he would regularly intercede, albeit unsuccessfully, on her behalf at court. Mary's governess, Lady Salisbury, tried to stay with Mary, but it was denied by the king. Shopwees wrote on December 16, 1533 about this, saying, quote, The Lady Salisbury offered to serve the princess at her own cost with a good and honorable train of servants, but her offers were not accepted, nor will they ever be. For were the said lady to remain by the princess, they would no longer be able to execute their bad designs, which are evidently either to cause her to die of grief or in some other way, or else to compel her to renounce her rights, marry some low fellow, or let her for a prey to lust, so that they may have pretext and excuse for disinheriting her and submitting her to all manner of bad treatment, end quote. Now, Shopwees was acting as a kind of liaison between Mary and Catherine as well, and I believe this was their only form of communication was through Shopwees. Like, he would visit the Lady Mary, talk to her, visit her, and then he would go see Catherine, talk to her, visit her, and kind of keep her up to speed on what was going on with their daughter. Gotcha, gotcha. So Mary was held under the watchful eye of her aunt and uncle, Sir John Shelton, and his wife, the Lady Shelton. Her life was miserable here. Shopwees reported that she wept constantly. She had only one chamberwoman with her, and she was given the worst lodgings of the house. When Anne Boleyn found out her stepdaughter was eating her food in her chambers, she ordered that she be stopped and that she was not able to eat unless it was in the main hall and that if she declared herself to be a princess, her ears were to be boxed if she disobeyed. Boxed? Yeah, like punch you in the ear. Holy shit. Yeah, if she ever said anything about being a princess, just whap. Holy fucking shit. The relationship between Mary and her father, however, worsened. They did not speak to each other for three years. And when he came to visit his daughter Elizabeth, he refused to see Mary. So Mary watched him leave from the tower of the abode, where he touched his hat and motioned farewell to her. She wouldn't see him again until 1536. 
Now, side note, Lady Shelton was not as cruel as Anne Boleyn had wished, and Anne told Lady Shelton that she was being entirely too lenient on Mary. But even with the presence of leniency, she was still a cruel woman. Like, this was not a good woman. Right, right. Furthermore, all of Mary's jewels and possessions were taken from her, and just two months after her arrival at Hatfield, this former princess was now being imprisoned, starved, threatened with physical violence, reduced to a servant, deliberately put into substandard accommodations, forbidden from attending mass in case she was cheered by the public, and virtually had no clothing left. And this torment would carry on for over two years. Goodness, man. That is absolutely just fucking heartbreaking. Like, they are literally putting her in a position to make her believe that she is no longer royalty. It's like a form of manipulation and I mean, it's abuse. I mean, it's abuse. It's, It's horrific abuse. Like, they take her away from her mom. She's just cast into this fucking crazy crazy situation surrounded by people who clearly don't have good intentions at heart for her right like it is just really really sad it's like she's ripped away from her security and then just thrown into this whatever we want to call it in 1534 the pope finally made a decision on whether or not the marriage was valid and he said yes it was but it was too late the line of succession had changed from Catherine's daughter mary to Anne Boleyn's future children. This completely cut Mary out of her inheritance, and King Henry made a decree that the king's subjects swear an oath to Henry as the head of the Church of England, making it extremely dangerous to say, um, no, Catherine's the queen and Mary's the princess. (laughs) Right. Like, you would literally be executed for not agreeing to the oath to the king and Anne Boleyn. And the new line of succession. Like you were, you would just be taken out. And many people did die over this. Good grief, man. Catherine and Mary refused the legitimacy of Henry's marriage to Anne as they were affirmed by the Pope that they were still deemed legitimate in the Pope's eyes. But in response, Catherine was further banished when she was sent to Kimbleton Castle. Mary's only friendly lady maid was dismissed when it was found out that the maid was helping to get word of Catherine to Mary. So the remaining servants were removed or sent to the tower or executed for saying that Lady Mary and Catherine were the true queen and princess. So the powers that be were doing everything in their power to keep mother and child separated. Mary was now watched constantly, and no one was really allowed to visit her. And when the young Elizabeth would receive guests, Mary would be locked in her room. Mary feared for her life. Anne had made repeated threats toward Mary's well-being. Thomas Cromwell said repeatedly and openly that he wished both Catherine and Mary were dead. And in early 1535... Chapuis reported that Mary had been told that she must renounce her title and take the oath. She must not call herself princess or her mother the queen if she expected to stay alive. And if she ever did, she would be sent to the tower and executed. God. uh... Weeks later, just before her 19th birthday, Mary grew dangerously ill. 
Some suspected Mary had been poisoned, but the doctors blamed it on sorrow and troubles in her life. They also recommended that she be allowed to see her mother, but Henry still refused and blamed all of her medical issues on her own behavior for refusing to agree to Henry's demands and Catherine's influence on her. He did, however, move Mary to another house that was closer to Catherine as Catherine was also sick, and that way the doctors wouldn't have to travel too far to see the both of them. Even as Catherine lay at home, deathly ill, Mary was still refused permission to visit her mom or communicate with her in any way. More and more of her supporters were being killed while this was going on. Bishop John Fisher and Thomas More were executed for their support of Catherine and Mary, and in turn, Mary began to try to make steps to flee England. Chapuis wrote to Charles V in Spain on May 5, 1535, saying, quote, As to what is contained in your last letters about getting away the princess, my man returned from her this morning and has reported that she thinks of nothing else than how it may be done, her desire for it increasing every day, end quote. By the end of the year, Henry seemed to be moving toward killing Catherine and Mary. Armed guards were placed around both of their residences. What? Yes. That is so, I mean, all of this is fucking extreme, but like, God. He was, like, he just was not playing around. He wanted certain things to happen. And because they were like, um, yeah, no, actually, you can't fucking do that. Then, you know, he was just, King Henry was a piece of work. It's just the cruelty of it, which I know that's like a common theme through like 99% of human history. But it's just like, this is so cruel and so extreme. Like, I just. And the, the sad thing about it is when you're dealing with a hierarchy hierarchy like that if your subjects aren't doing what you want them to do then you do shit like this to keep them under your thumb you know sort of how um our government is to us but you know (laughs) that's a different cup of tea for a different tea party yeah yeah (laughs) the pot is still cold for that story (laughs) so Catherine died in 1536 at the age of 50 and Mary was just inconsolable and devastated. Mary grieved the loss of her mother in semi-seclusion and had it been me, had it been me, full seclusion, full, I'm, no, not being able to see my mother at all, not even before she dies. And then for that to happen, that's just. That's cold and cruel. It's next level shit, for sure. Mary's mother was now dead. Her emotionally abusive father alienated her and was possibly plotting to have her killed, which was encouraged by her stepmother from hell, Anne Boleyn. Her half-sister Elizabeth now had her title, her claim to the crown, and all the things that Mary had once enjoyed, while Mary herself was a prisoner, constantly ill and with no one to turn to. Many of her supporters had been brutally killed or purposely kept away. The king, who was once kind and loving and whom she adored, 
had done everything he could to break her down and destroy her sense of identity and self-worth. Mary was raised to believe she would be Queen of England or likely a Queen Consort, but now she was being told that she was nothing but a royal bastard and the product of an invalid and incestuous marriage. So from 1527 to 1536, Mary had endured nothing but trauma and pain. Nine years of this shit. So you can only imagine what that did to her mentally. I couldn't imagine. Honestly, I really truly couldn't. But this is but a small glimpse into Queen Mary I's childhood and adolescence. I wanted to really focus on those points of her childhood because now I'm about to cover the things she did during her reign that nicknamed her Bloody Mary. And if you're interested in the history part of it, I've included some videos by History Calling on YouTube regarding the life of Queen Mary. They do a really good job breaking down what happened and explaining things. So I definitely want you all to check it out. They were one of my sources for today, and the videos are very informative. They're very great, and they have pictures, so... Yes, we like informative. We like pictures. So, as we all know, Mary did go on to become the Queen of England. There were, of course, issues with her late brother, King Edward VI succession, and plots to keep Mary from the throne by putting the Lady Jane Grey on the throne instead. But Mary overcame all of these obstacles. She was crowned on October 1st in 1553 in Westminster Abbey, and her parliament convened four days later. One of the first things Mary did was declare the marriage between Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragorn valid, establishing Mary's legitimacy to the throne. This was the major payoff for her, because for the majority of her life, she was nothing but a royal bastard, and this vindicated both Mary and her mother. Hell yeah. At the same time, Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury and an advisor to King Henry VIII and Edward VI, Mary's father and brother, he was now imprisoned in the tower. So Cranmer had declared the marriage of Mary's parents unlawful so Henry could wed Anne Boleyn. And during the reign of Edward, the archbishop promoted Protestantism. He was also involved in the plot to put Jane Grey on the throne. So, as you can imagine, Mary didn't like him very much. So, off to the tower with you. In 1554, a group of Englishmen attempted to overthrow Mary, fearing foreign domination if Mary wed Spain's Prince Philip. Since both Philip and Mary were Catholic, people were anxious that the monarchs would restore Catholicism. Referred to by historians as the Wyatt Rebellion for one of the conspirators, Sir Thomas Wyatt, but the uprising quickly failed. They underestimated Mary and the people she had sworn to protect her. Afterward, around a hundred people involved were executed. There were mass hangings in the streets and public beheadings. And although Lady Jane Grey, the so-called nine-day queen, had not been involved in the plot, but her father was, so Lady Jane was subsequently beheaded and her husband, Lord Dudley, was also executed. 
Additionally, Mary's sister, Elizabeth, was imprisoned in the Tower of London for several months and later placed under house arrest for a year. Although there were no conclusive evidence that she had any role in the rebellion either. Like, she had no part in it. One of the things Mary resurrected were the laws against heresy. So first, it's important to note that heresy was considered by all to be an infection of the body politic that had to be erased. Because they thought that persons' words and actions would poison society at large. All over Europe, the punishment for heresy was not only death, but also the total destruction of the heretic's corpse. And this was to prevent any use of their body parts for relics. So most heretics were burned and their ashes thrown into the river. And Mary's choice of burning was completely standard practice for the period. As a result, nearly 300 Protestants were burned at the stake for their beliefs during their reign. God. Not to mention the fact there was no prejudice, child, woman, or man. She even burned pregnant women at the stake. Yeah. Holy shit. One of her first acts was to marry Prince Philip of Spain in 1554. Now, she pushed the marriage through a resistant parliament as she was desperate to conceive a Catholic heir. Philip was given the title of King of England, and the pair effectively ruled together. Shortly after Mary wed at age 37, the queen and her doctors believed she was pregnant. She began to experience morning sickness, her belly expanded, her menstruation stopped, and she would reportedly feel the baby move. An official announcement was made that the queen was expecting, and as the anticipated delivery drew near, Mary retreated from public view for her lying-in period, and this was a period of time that the queen is out of view during the last part of her pregnancy. So Mary seemed to be getting everything she ever wanted since childhood. She was queen, her legitimacy was restored, she secured a marriage and alliance with Spain, and now she was expecting. But things didn't turn out quite like Mary had hoped. Throughout her pregnancy, things appeared to be normal. Her clothes no longer fit her, she felt a baby moving, and she has all these pregnancy symptoms, but nothing was happening. There were rumors of a miscarriage or a faked pregnancy. Hell, there were even rumors that she had died and no one wanted to come forward about it. It was also said that she was able to sit for hours with her knees drawn up to her chest, which was something that no pregnant woman could do without, like, physical great pain. Right, right. Some time passed. And word spread that Mary had given birth to a son and her subjects started celebrating. On the 30th of April, quote, bells rang, bonfires were lit, and there were celebrations in the street. Following news that Mary I had given birth to a healthy son, but in reality there was no boy, and eventually all hope of a child died out, end quote. So the news turned out to only be a rumor. More time passed, but a royal infant never appeared, and eventually, 
it became apparent one never would. So although it's unclear exactly what happened, some medical experts now suggest Mary might have suffered from pseudocyasis, which is a rare condition in which a woman has many of the symptoms of pregnancy, and in some cases they can even experience labor pains, but it isn't, in fact, a child that they're carrying. They're basically... It's like a phantom pregnancy, basically. Exactly. That's what. That's the word I was looking for. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, it's an old episode of ours, but I actually think we talked about that in the Bobby Joe Stinnett case. Yes. So that's actually where I remembered that fact from. Yes. Look at us learning things. Learning things from our old episodes. <laughs> yes. Right, right. So mixed with the speculation that Mary suffered from endometriosis, we begin to get a clearer picture here. Several years after her false pregnancy, Mary and her doctors once again incorrectly thought she was expecting, and this caused quite a backlash amongst the people. There were rumors circulating, even pamphlets being printed making fun of her, and the general consensus on Mary was not popular at all. They were saying that she gave birth to a fleshy mass, or that she had just faked the pregnancy. There was no pregnancy at all. She just wanted to be relevant. People are just insane. And it was around that time that, you know, because she had killed so many Protestants and then, like, the fake pregnancy is going on. This is around the time that she actually started being called Bloody Mary. It was like a like a nasty thing to call a woman was bloody. Her husband, being displeased that he remained fatherless, left her side to return to his own country. She ultimately died childless. As we know, the legend of Bloody Mary touches on the loss of a child. As Bloody Mary is summoned, either looking for a baby or holding a dead baby in her arms, could it be the unrested or cursed soul of Mary Tudor? Are all those souls she condemned for their faith torturing her in the afterlife? Chills. What the fuck? Is she doomed to spend the rest of eternity searching for the baby she never got the chance to have? Or could my next story be the true story of Bloody Mary? So many people already believe that Mary Worth was a witch. She lived in an extremely small cabin in the forest just outside of a town, spending her time foraging and crafting tinctures and herbal remedies to sell, you know, just living her best witchy life. But the locals were very wary of her. Like, they didn't want to get too close. They didn't want to speak to her or even be in the same room with her. They were fearful that she'd curse them or their animals. Some crazy shit like that. So the locals that were friendly with her and used her remedies were shunned by the super-religious in the community because they were participating in witchcraft. Goodness, imagine that. Well, soon, small girls started to go missing from the town. People were freaking out and looking everywhere they could think of to find them. So a small mob of people ventured out to Mary's cabin to look for the girls there. Mary denied knowing anything about the girls' disappearances, but the families were suspicious, stating that her usually haggard appearance had drastically changed. 
she was starting to appear more youthful and feminine. I mean, damn, y'all. She worked with herbs. Maybe she just changed her skincare routine. I mean, fuck. Why, y'all? Why does it gotta be? Why does it gotta be witchcraft? Why you gotta jump to conclusions? How come it can't be just a nice moisturizer slash cleanser combo? Why does it have to be black magic, bitches? (laughs) One night, the Miller's daughter was captivated by a noise that only she could hear. Her mom was awake to hear the commotion because she was actually sitting up in bed treating her toothache with an herbal remedy that she had gotten from Mary. So Mrs. Miller was very frightened and shouted for her husband's help because their daughter was up roaming around unresponsive to anything anyone was saying to her. So the daughter followed the unspoken and unseen force out of the house and into the woods. Her parents were shouting at her to come back, but to no avail. The Millers recruited the help of a few townsfolk, and the local farmer noticed that there was a strange light at the edge of the forest. When they got closer to the light, they noticed Mary was standing in a clearing next to a huge oak tree. They reported that Mary was holding a wand, pointing it toward the Millers' home, and it was glowing by some unnatural light. Oh, shit. This was the light that the Miller's daughter was supposedly responding to. So once the farmer and Mr. Miller noticed Mary and the light, they set upon her with pitchforks and guns. It was at this time that Mary broke her concentration and turned to run back into the forest towards her cottage. But the farmer shot her in the hip with a silver bullet that he saved just in case something like this were to happen. So the mob came down on her, taking her back to the town, kicking, thrashing, and screaming, where a stake and bonfire was promptly built to rid them of this evil witch for good. Good God. As Mary Worth burned at the stake, she placed a curse upon the villagers telling them if they ever dared to utter her name in a mirror, her spirit would come for them to exact her revenge. How specific. Holy shit. Once they conducted a search of her cottage, they found all the missing children. There were rows and rows of unmarked graves. Mary had been using the blood of the children to revitalize herself. Little is known about Mary Worth and their speculation whether she even existed. The Lake County Journal, however, writes that Mary Worth was a local of Wadsworth, Illinois, who was part of the Reverse Underground Railroad. So Bob Jensen, a paranormal investigator and the leader of Lake County's Ghostland Society, told the Lake County Journal, quote, She'd bring in slaves under false pretenses to send them back down south and make some money, end quote. Holy shit. Jensen explained that Mary Worth also tortured and killed escaped slaves as part of her witchy rituals. Eventually, the local townspeople found out and killed her, either by burning her at the stake or by lynching her. The legend of Bloody Mary is one that stands the test of time. Young children everywhere, usually with friends, hear the legend and want to see Bloody Mary for themselves. 
The most common version of the legend states that if you chant her name three times into a mirror, you'll summon the ghost of Bloody Mary. Supposedly, she'll take your soul for her own, rip your soul to shreds in the process, leaving what's left of your soul to burn trapped inside the mirror, just like she was left to burn by the villagers. This legend seems to change depending on who you're talking to. Sometimes it's Queen Mary I searching for her baby, doomed to be summoned and reminded of the struggle of being childless. Or sometimes it's the story of Mary Worth, baying for your blood in revenge for her death. Do you call her name three times or thirteen times? I honestly don't know and I really don't want to find out. In some versions of the tale, summoners can even taunt Bloody Mary by saying, I stole your baby or I killed your baby. So you could really understand if it was Queen Mary the first, who is in fact the real Bloody Mary, how those two sentences would get under her skin. Right, right. The little details always change, but the legend of Bloody Mary remains the same. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be the one to find out. And that concludes the origins of Bloody Mary. Honestly, this episode was super cool. I live for your miniseries. It was fun. But it's also awful. Like, not only, you know, the history of Queen Mary, but the story of Mary Worth is, like, all of it is fucking awful. Unfortunately, the story of Mary Worth is so, like, just small and compact. Because if you try to look up Mary Worth, it does not go very well on Google. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You still did a really good job. I felt like this was not only a perfect episode for October. It's a little bit of spook, a little bit of urban legend, a little bit of history. Yeah. I mean, it was fun. I just don't know what to make of it. Because I remember Bloody Mary when I was younger. Like, you would hear other kids, like, talk about it. And I think, I'm trying to remember exactly, but uh, me and a cousin of mine, I remember tried playing Bloody Mary, but I got so scared that, like, I couldn't even get past saying her name once or twice. I definitely didn't say it three times. Like, I always chickened out, but that is something that I grew up with and that I tried playing one time, but I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't fuck with spirits. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, too, because a lot of people that do play the game of Bloody Mary, what they don't understand is that if you are in a dark room with a candle and you're staring at yourself in the mirror, if you stare long enough, you will actually begin to hallucinate that your face will change and smile and You'll start turn demonic. And yeah. Oh, God, it's so weird that our brain does that. Why does our brain do that? I don't know, but, you know, using a dark room and a candle in a mirror that is also used in divination. Right, scrying. Yes. Yes, very, very, very true. So I wouldn't be surprised if your face started changing. And mirrors have also, like in lots of different folklore and legends, mirrors are said to be gateways yes. to the spirit world, like doorways, basically. So I don't know, because I believe in spirit, I therefore do not fuck with it. Same. <laughs> so I don't same. know. All the same. This episode was really, really fun, though. I definitely got the spooks from it. 
So, yeah. Now that we've talked about Bloody Mary, we've had your volume three of Things That Keep Me Up at Night. I suppose we can wrap things on up. So, if you would like to follow me and Ray and all of our... Well, great news. You can totally do that. You can find us on Facebook at... Gore Report, a true crime podcast. On Instagram. At Gore Report Podcast. And since we're not announcing Twitter anymore at the end of our episodes, because we're not using it, we figured we would replace it with Patreon. So if you would like to follow us on Patreon, you can totally do that. At Gore Report Podcast. And if you are indeed laying, thinking, pondering, lying awake at night, then I wish you sweet dreams. But remember, it's all in your head.